But this morning, we are wrapping up this series, Small But Powerful. As you know, if you've been with us, there are five books in the Bible that are just one chapter long, and we've looked at four of them so far. The book of 2 John, the book of Obadiah, the book of Philemon, and the book of 3 John. And now this morning, we're going to wrap up by looking at the book of Jude. So let me give you a little background on the book of Jude, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, Jude is a letter that was written by Jude. Um, But unlike some of the other letters in the Bible that we've looked at, this is not written to a specific person, uh, an individual or a specific church. It's written to the church, to all the churches. So this letter was written and it would be circulated among the churches. It would be brought to a church, they'd read it, uh, they would discuss it, then they would pass it on to another church, another village, another town, another city, and it would make its way around. Sometimes they would, they would uh, have people that would make uh, copies of the letter so that it could be uh, dispersed throughout all of the uh, believers, the Christians, so that they could understand what it is that, that God was teaching them through, uh, in this case, Jude. Now, who was Jude? Jude, we don't know much about him. Let's be honest. Uh, if you know your Bible, you don't know much about Jude. Um, we know that he's the brother of James, and he's going to introduce himself as the brother of James. And James was a half-brother of Jesus. So that means Jude was also a half-brother of Jesus. Um, and, and that's the extent of really what we know about him. It's interesting, neither James nor Jude actually um, refer themselves as brothers of Jesus, but other parts in the Bible uh, talks about that. Jesus had brothers and sisters, uh, but they were half-brothers and sisters. Before uh, or after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other kids, but Jesus, of course, was uh, immaculately conceived. He was born of a virgin, so while he was physically born uh, in in the way humans are, he was divinely conceived. So uh, all of Joseph and Mary's other children were Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. We don't know the names of any of his sisters. We do know the names of some of his brothers, uh, one being James, the other being Jude. Uh, and like I said, they don't, they don't leverage that. I don't know if it's because part of it was kind of they were embarrassed and ashamed that early on in Jesus' life and ministry, they did not only not believe him and, and follow him, they actually thought he was out of his mind. Um, so you've got to imagine the transformative work to go from thinking your, your older brother is insane to acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. Um, so I don't know if it was that. I mean, some of you have brothers and sisters. What would your brother or sister have to do to convince you that they were God? Um, so what, <laughs> that, that tells you something. I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's simply that they didn't want their words to carry weight because of an outward thing. Like, it's not really about the outward it's about the inner work and the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in my life. My, I want my words and the things I write, and I want to be used by God because of what he's doing in me and through me, not because of the outward. And uh, you know, I think that's true for us today. So often we look at results, as we talked about last week, instead of character. But whatever the reason was, he didn't leverage that, but he does acknowledge that he's the brother of James. And although the letter isn't written to a specific church or a, a unique individual, Uh, He did write it for a very unique purpose. Now, if you've read through the book of Jude, uh, knowing we're going to be talking about it this morning, if you've ever read through it, it's got some things in it that can make you go, where did that come from? What is he talking about? What is he even referencing? And we're going to get to some of that stuff, but I want to start by looking at the entire purpose of what of why he wrote this letter. Because if we don't understand why he wrote the letter, what he, the issue that he's addressing, those other things become um, 
the main focus, and they're not. They are there to, um, to help support and to bring clarity to what he's trying to address. But they are not the main issue. The main issue is the issue of grace. So let's start the first five verses of the book of Jude. <clears throat> Jude, a servant of Jesus, a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write instead and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. That is the issue right there. I'm writing because people have perverted, twisted, distorted what grace is all about. And they are using it as license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our Lord and sovereign, our only sovereign and Lord. So Jude is saying there is a, an, an issue that I want to deal with, and it's the issue of grace. We have to understand grace because if we don't understand grace, everything will be um, off in our relationship with God because grace is essential to our faith and understanding of who God is. Grace is a central tenet of our faith. As a matter of fact, the word grace is used in the New Testament more than the word hell, more than the word forgiveness, and more than the word prayer. And I hear people talk all the time about the importance of reaching people to save them from hell, the importance of praying to God, the importance of asking God for forgiveness. And those things are important. Please hear me. Those are critically important. But all of those things are predicated upon our understanding and a proper understanding of what grace is. Because if we don't properly understand grace, then grace will be uh, twisted and distorted and perverted, and it will lead us into all kind of error and misunderstanding. So that's what was happening, that these people were coming in. And what they were teaching was, hey, because of what God did through Jesus Christ, you are free from the consequences of sin. And because you are free from the consequences of sin, that means you are free to sin, to sin more, to do whatever you want, because there are no consequences. So what they were teaching, in essence, was this, that you were free to sin, not that you were free from sin. You're free to sin as much as you want. It wasn't about being free from the power of sin. It was about being free from the consequences of sin. And if there's no consequences, well, then all bets are off. It was a perverted misunderstanding of grace. And, and Jude wasn't the only one to deal with it because their understanding was this, that Every time, every time, every time, every time you sin, it's met with grace. So here's how the equation would work. Here's how the ledger would look. Here's how the, the spreadsheet would look. If you sin and it's met with grace, then there's more grace. So if you sin more, there's more grace, more sin, more grace, more sin, more grace, and more grace is a good thing. Paul dealt with this. Uh, you can read about it a uh, few different places, but one specifically is in Romans chapter 6. And he starts and he says, what, what am I supposed to say to all this? Should we continue sinning? Should we increase in our sin? Should we sin more and more and more so that, gra that grace would abound and increase all the more? He says, God forbid. 
And he goes on to say, don't you understand that those of us who are alive in Christ are dead to sin? This isn't about sinning more so that grace is, is increased. You have misunderstood. You have twisted. You have perverted the very idea of what God's grace is all about. So before we continue into the rest of the book of Jude, it's important that we understand what grace is because otherwise the confusing parts in the book of Jude, the things that make us scratch our head and go, what's he referring to? Won't make any sense. But if we understand it in the light of what grace truly is based on who God is, then those other things begin to make sense. So I could preach on this for a long time and I'm going to try and truncate it down to one sermon. So I want to start by looking just quickly at the nature and character of God. If we want to understand what grace is, we have to understand who God is. Um, and specifically, when I talk about the nature and character of God, I want to talk about two aspects of that. God's holiness and God's love. God is holy and God is love. The Bible makes that abundantly clear, that God is both. That God is love, God is holy. And our understanding of God, our view of God, rests in that moment where holiness and love intersect. And that's where grace is found. See, if we don't understand grace, right? The Bible tells us it's by grace we're saved through faith. If we don't understand grace, then we don't really understand who God is because uh, our relationship with God rests on our understanding of grace. And so when it, where God's holiness and love intersect, at that crossroads is what grace is all about. So let me give you an example about this. Um, so, so God's holiness. God's holiness means that God is perfect. He is without sin. See, God isn't holy because he's never sinned. God never sins because he is holy. And there's a big difference because one says, well, maybe God could sin. And if he sins, then, you know, we're on deep yogurt. The other says, because of God's holiness, he can't sin. And because he's holy and he can't sin, when sin happens, he cannot tolerate it in the sense of just kind of, it's not a big deal. Sin, God has to deal with in light of his holiness. So he says, if there's sin, it needs to be punished. But at the same time, God is love. And so when sin happens, God's love says, I desire to offer forgiveness. I don't want to destroy people. I don't want to see them uh, taken out. I want to see them walk in love and forgiveness. So you've got these two realities at play. So when sin happens, God's holiness is violated and God's love wants to move. And that's where grace kicks in. We see this in the very beginning in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the very first sin that happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, because God said, listen, there's all kinds of things you could do. Really, there's very few restrictions on you. Actually, there's only one. We talk about the Ten Commandments. We can't follow the one commandment. Adam and Eve couldn't. He said, you can do anything you want. Just do, don't do this one thing. Don't eat of the fruit of this particular tree. Any other fruit you could do. Any other thing is fine. Every other thing is good. But don't do that. And they did it. And sin entered in. And God said, on the day you eat of it, on the day you rebel against me, on the day you go your own way and think you know better than I do, on the day you sin, you will surely die. And they ate of the tree. And God comes in and says, now my holiness has been violated and you deserve death. But at that same moment, his love kicks in. And I say kick in, it's a human term. It's always there. It's, it's, I understand that, right? So you've got his holiness and his love. But his love is real. And his love is active. 
And so his holiness says you deserve death. His love says I want to offer forgiveness. And so what happens? Death happens, but he allows a substitutionary death, the death of an animal. So God kills an animal in order to make clothes to cover their nakedness and their shame. And moreover, spiritual death happens because they're separated from God. And he says, you can no longer be in my presence. And his presence at that point in their understanding of who God was, was represented in the garden. And he says, you can't be here anymore. And he kicks them out of the garden. And there is this separation. And they look and say, there's no way back in. There is no way back in. Look what we've done. But God's love is still active, and at that moment, he begins to set in motion a plan for salvation. And it was a plan that he already actually set in motion before he even created the world and created humanity because he knew that they would fail. So God says there's sin, and I need to deal with sin. But God can't just deal with sin and pretend it's not a big deal. See, God had to and has to and always will deal with sin in light of his holiness and his love. And when we lose track of that and we fixate on his love, or when we lose track of that and fixate on his holiness, then we lose track of who God is. See, the Bible makes it really clear that everyone outside of Jesus, every person has sinned and fallen short of God's perfection. Now, the word sin is interesting. It's a, it's a Greek term. It's actually an archery term. So when you were shooting arrows in an archery event, there was targets all over, and you would try and hit the target based on what uh, discipline you were doing. And they would shoot, and if they missed the target, they missed the mark, it was called a sin. And it didn't matter if you missed the mark by a centimeter or a meter. If you missed the mark, it was a sin. And in the same way for us, if we live intentionally choosing to go against God's way, against the way he asks us to live, against his commandments, it's a sin. And if we, on the flip side, are trying our best to follow after God, to do what he wants us to do, but we fail to do it perfectly, and we all will, it's a sin, and we miss the mark. So all of us have sinned. All of us have violated God's holiness. And as a result, he decreed, I can't tolerate it. You deserve death. That's his holiness. But his love says, I desire, I want to, I long to offer forgiveness. But there has to be a penalty for sin. A sacrifice has to be made. Death has to result because the wages of sin is death. It's known as the law of sin and death. And we all know this just by living, right? Where there's sin, it results in death. Where there's sin, it results in death. When you sin against your spouse, it damages and kills your relationship. When you sin against a friend, it damages and kills your friendship. When you sin in your finances, you see financial death. When you sin in your business, it causes organizational death. And when you sin against God, it causes spiritual death. And so, Death is always the result. So a sacrifice has to be made in order to pay the penalty for our sin. And you say, that seems intense, but here's why God did that. Because God says, you need to understand two things. First of all, sin is messy, sin is gruesome, and sin is costly. And if you've ever been impacted by sin because of something you've done or a sin someone's done to you, you know it's gruesome, you know it's messy, and you know it's costly. And the payment for sin is also gruesome and messy and costly because it has to be. So God says, you need to understand that I want to deal with your sin by pouring out love, 
but I want to deal with your sin because I'm also holy in a, in a just way. See, if God could simply wave his hand and say, all sins are forgiven. Just, here's grace. All sins are forgiven. It would be love without holiness, which would mean God would cease to be God. At the same time, in the moment of our sin, if God just said, that's it, you're done, I'll take you out, you're dead, you deserve death, there would be holiness without love. And God would cease to be God. So God looked at Adam and Eve and us outside the garden, looking back and saying, there's no way back in. And he says, but I'll make a way where there is no way. And I will set in motion this plan of salvation that's going to be amazing. See, love without holiness is nothing than chaotic permissiveness. Holiness without love is nothing but rigid legalism. So God looked and said, I'm going to make a way where there is no way. And he decided and, and spoke through the prophets and let everyone know that at the exact time, a time of his choosing, and we don't understand why he chose this time, that he was going to send his Messiah, his anointed one. And at that time, Jesus Christ. Christ means, it's a, it's a, a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, was born. His own son, as I said, born of a virgin, fully man, fully God, came and lived a perfect life, never sinned, never missed the mark, never violated God's holiness, and instead was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect dying for the imperfect, the sinless dying for the sinful, that, the one who never missed the mark dying for those who could never hit the mark. And he says, I'll do this for you. Because what did he do? In that, Jesus said, this is what God's holiness looks like. This is what it means to uphold God's holiness. And yet this is what it means to understand God's love. See, in Christ, God reveals his holiness and his love. In Christ, God's grace is revealed. God's grace is revealed in Christ. Here's his holiness and here's his love and here's what it looks like. And when we begin to pervert, twist, or distort what God's grace is, then it's what Jude said. You're denying what Jesus even came to do. You don't even understand who he is. And you're going to miss out on the great work of grace in your life. See, they were teaching that because of the, the, uh, the sin, the shame of sin was taken away from your life, then you were free to do what you want. But what Jesus came to do was not just remove the shame of sin, but the power of sin. He didn't just come to make you feel better. He came to make you into someone better. God's grace does more than just take away the shame and make you feel better. It makes you into someone better. It's an inner work, a transformative work that God says, listen, when you acknowledge who I am, what I've done, and the cost that I paid for your sin, it's meant to change you. See, it's easy to come to God and just say, I'm going to see your love and grab hold of Jesus. But if we, if we attempt to grab hold of Jesus and hold on to our sin, we fail to understand what grace is all about. Grace isn't holding on to our sin and grabbing hold of Jesus. Grace is leaving our sin at the foot of the cross so that we can grab on to Jesus and say, I want to be changed I want to be transformed. I want to be different. 
I want you to do that great inner work within me. Listen, if you were here with us last week and we talked at the end of both services, we just shared some church family business, some things we were dealing with. My hope and prayer is that you saw what I saw, which is grace on display. God's holiness, this happened and it was wrong and, and, and God's forgiveness is there, but we can't ask for forgiveness if we don't acknowledge that forgiveness is needed. And so God, thank you, thank you, thank you for your forgiveness. And in that moment, in that dark moment, whatever your dark moment is, when it seems like you don't know what the future is going to hold and you can't pull your head up above the waves, that's where God love, God's love rushes in and says, I will bring beauty from ashes. I will bring joy from sorrow. I can make something beautiful out of something that seems destroyed. That's God's grace. It's not denying his holiness. It's not permissive. It's freedom. It's the freedom that God wants for you and for me. And so he goes on and writes this. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their proper places of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire in the very same way. On the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse upon celestial beings. Now there's a lot there and it can be confusing. So I want to unpack this. But remember, this is in light of grace. This is in light of understanding God's holiness in light of his love and seeing that those two intersect. In other words, it's, it's, he's giving now examples of what it means when we misunderstand, pervert, twist, or distort grace. So he says there are these people from Israel and they witnessed God's grace because God led them miraculously out of bondage to the Egyptians, but they presumed upon God's grace. They twisted God's grace. They said, because God was gracious to us, he's never going to punish us. So we could do anything we want. And they were destined for destruction. Then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and the surrounding villages and towns. And he says, these people were full of sexual perversion and immorality and doing all kinds of things that violate my God's, that violate God's holiness. And God says, but they looked and said, God's not ever going to do anything. Nothing's going to happen. I mean, look, we've been doing this for years. There's not going to be any consequences, but there's consequences for our sin. And then he talks about these angels being bound in chains, and that could be the one that's kind of a little confusing for us. It, it can make us go, what is he getting at here? So let me, let me just unpack that for a moment. Um, first of all, if you're not familiar with this, let, let me help you understand that uh, there is a realm beyond the physical realm. There's, a, there's a, a, something beyond the created order. There's a spiritual realm or a supernatural realm. And in that realm, there's activity happening and it's populated by uh, spiritual beings, primarily angels and demons. And, and so let me, let me talk about angels for a minute. First of all, and let me say this with love and grace and compassion, because some of you may think this, believe this, and it may be comforting to you, but I need to speak the truth in love. If you've lost a child, if you've lost a parent, if you've lost a loved one, they are not an angel in heaven. Please hear me. I, I know so. Well, God needed another angel. It, 
it may sound comforting. We are not angels. We don't become angels. And thank God we don't. And I'll tell you why. Because although the Bible says that when Jesus came in the flesh, he was made a little lower than the angels, it does not mean that we are less than. See, we are created in God's image. There is a majesty to us that the angels just don't get and they don't understand. When it means that God, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, it means that they are in God's heavenly abode. They are in God's presence, what we call heaven, his dwelling place. And that is a holy place. And when Jesus left heaven, he came to earth. So he was lower than the angels. But it also says of Jesus, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? And because we are brothers and sisters with, in, with Christ when we come to faith through Jesus Christ, we have this great assurance that Jesus is now seated in the heavenly places and we're going to be seated with him. We have a higher standing than the angels. You don't want your loved one to become an angel. You want them to walk in the fullness of what it means to be a son and daughter of God. So don't think being an angel is a comforting thing. Being a, a son and daughter of, with God in heaven is the comfort that we have. So the angels were created by God. Beings that uh, are not human. They're not made in God's image, but they interact with humans. Um, they're given a free will. And, and God uses, there's, there's, there's thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of angels. We don't know how many. We know Jesus tells one story. He says, if, my, if I called upon my heavenly father, he would send 12 legions of angels. And a legion at that time in the Roman army was anywhere between 3,000 to 7,000 soldiers. So just in that little story that Jesus told, it's anywhere in the tens and uh, almost, what, uh, 80,000, 140,000. I mean, it was a huge number, huge number of angels. We don't know how many. We don't know their names. We know a few of them by name, but not many. Uh, we know that there are different types of angels uh, that are mentioned in the Bible, cherubim, seraphim, archangels. So there's an order and a structure, but because they were given will, the freedom to either obey God or disobey God, some of these angels disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. And as a result, they lost their position in God's dwelling place in heaven, and they were cast to earth. And now they are what we refer to as demons, fallen angels. That's what Satan is. He was a fallen angel, likely an archangel, who was puffed up with pride and wanted to sit on God's throne. And he led the book of Revelation, gives us the idea that he led about a third of the angels in rebellion against God, and they were cast out of heaven. And, and, and we don't know why God allowed Satan to be in rebellion, and we don't know why he allows him to continue to be in rebellion. But now Satan and the, and the demons work to thwart God's plan and purpose and will here on earth. They are in, in rebellion against God, and they will be until the day of judgment. So angels and demons, and what Jude is getting at is this. So the reason I tell you all that is because these people that were perverting grace were doing two things. One, they said, God's revealed this to us in a dream. I mean, they are trying to claim an authority and a, and a uh, certainty. I mean, this is true. God's revealed this in a dream to us. You can't disagree with this. And we understand grace to such a degree that not only is it licensed for you to live anyway, you have to understand that because of God's grace, even the angels will have an opportunity for redemption. But Jesus didn't die for the angels. Jesus died for sinful humanity. 
That's why Jude makes it clear they are, they are in eternal chains in darkness. There is no hope for redemption for the angels. I remember one time talking to someone out at this church. This was years ago. And they said, Pastor, God's put it on my heart to pray for the devil. And I said, explain that one to me. And they said, well, in the Bible, it says pray for your enemies. I said, yeah. And then the Bible says the devil is the enemy of our soul. I said, dear sister, do not pray for the devil. The devil is a defeated foe. God does not offer redemption or mercy or grace to the devil. Jesus died for sinful humanity. He didn't die for the devil. He didn't die for the demons. They are, they are bound for eternal judgment. And that's Jude's point, that if we twist grace so much that even the things that God decreed as bad, we somehow believe are good. We somehow believe are right. We somehow believe are okay because God's grace will supersede all that. And God's love will rush in and there won't be any problems. So here's his point. That grace does not mean living a sin-free life. It means living free from a life dominated by sin. See, when you come to God through Jesus Christ and his grace comes in, you're going to need more grace. You are going to sin. You are going to make mistakes. You're going to continue to miss the mark. There's going to be times when you mess up. You say, God, I need your grace. Grace doesn't mean that you are going to live a, a perfect sin-free life, but we are to pursue holiness. We are to pursue a life that reflects God's standard. But it does free us from a life dominated by sin. A life dominated by sin means you just give in to your base instincts, the things that you think are right, the things you want to do, the things that feel right. You just convince yourself there's nothing wrong with it. I don't even know if this is sin. It's kind of like the serpent said to Eve and Adam, did God really say? Is this really wrong? That's just your view. That's just your interpretation. That's just, that's just old-timey. That's not for today. And so grace becomes distorted. A life dominated by sin all of a sudden says, I have no choice but to sin. When we distort and pervert grace, we actually don't walk free from sin. We go back under a life dominated by sin because we've convinced ourselves nothing's off the table. So we do what's right, the lowest base instinct, what feels good, what we want to do, whenever we want to do it, with whoever we want to do it, how often we want to do it. And we say, I don't even know if this is sin. I mean, God doesn't really frown upon this. It's not the way I see it. It's not the way I understand it. And a life that's meant to live free from the power of sin is now dominated by sin because we've distorted and perverted and misunderstood what God's grace is all about. And then Jude goes on and says this, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander what they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy themselves. So what's he getting at here? First of all, you go, what's this whole Michael the archangel and Satan and the body of Moses? All right, well, we talked about angels, right? So here's one of the archangels, and we know his name, Michael. Where's this come from? You're like, I've read the Bible. I've never seen that in the Bible other than here. Like, where, what's he referencing? Well, he's referencing something that's not in the Bible. Um, there, was a, there is a series of writings called the Pseudopigrapha. Now, the Pseudopigrapha is a collection of books that uh, were well-known at the time. 
Uh, they're still known somewhat today. Uh, they, the, the Jewish listeners and readers would be, would be very familiar with those books. They were referenced and referred to often, but they were never, ever, ever historically or even to this day held in the same light of Scripture, by, either by Jewish scholars and the, the Jewish Bible called the Tanakh or by Christian scholars and Christian leaders for 2,000 years of church history. Some crazy small sects out there uh, grab hold of them. But the, the pseudepigrapha is not to be seen in the same light and the same weight as Scripture. But they were referenced and referred to. And this happens to be a reference to one of the books in the pseudepigrapha called The Assumption of Moses. So here's how the story goes. This isn't in the Bible. This is a story from extra-biblical source. And it was basically this. Moses dies. Moses led the people out of bondage to Egypt, led them right to the, the border of the promised land, but he wasn't allowed to go in because he sinned against God. So when Moses dies, God, according to the story, sent Michael the archangel to retrieve his body. As he's there to get the body of Moses, the devil shows up and says, you can't take him. You have no right to take his body. Because Moses was a murderer, you have no claim to his body. His body belongs to me. That was the argument. But what does Michael do? Michael doesn't say, you don't understand God's grace. You've misinterpreted God's grace. Moses sinned, but it doesn't matter because God's love supersedes his sin. God's love supersedes his holiness. You're twisting holiness. I'm taking the body because God said to take the body. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't slander him. He says, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, he leaves it in God's hands. I was sent here for a purpose. My understanding of grace and your understanding of grace, your understanding of God's holiness, my understanding of the law, God's going to deal with that. But I'm not going to claim to know something that I don't know anything about. And that's what these people were doing. They were claiming to know all this stuff. And he says, you don't even understand what you're talking about. And the things that you do understand that you know you shouldn't be doing, you simply do like you're mindless animals. So don't talk to me about what grace is when you don't even know what it means to walk in holiness. Very harsh, but it's very important for us to understand. And this is what it means for you and for me, that we should watch our words in claiming authority. I know how God works. I understand. I know for 2,000 years of church history, they viewed it this way, but I've got divine revelation. That's just, uh, that's just old time. That's old school. That's a bad interpretation. That's wrong. I mean, I know 2,000 years of orthodoxy says this, but now we're more enlightened when you claim that authority and you begin to pervert and twist God's grace, it will lead to a place that you don't want it to lead. That's why he goes on to this. And he says, woe to them, those that do this, that pervert that grace. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit in Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating without qualm, Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn leaves without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. This is harsh. This is, Jude is not playing here. He's saying to pervert the grace of Jesus is to not even understand who Jesus is. Enoch the seventh son of Adam, the great-grandfather of Noah, by the way, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, his angels, to judge everyone, to convict all of them of all. Now listen how many times he uses the word ungodly or some variation of that. 
to convict all of the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and to all of the defiant words ungodly sinners are spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They use grace as a license to sin. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So he's saying, listen, uh, if you don't understand grace properly, if you begin to pervert it and twist it, what you're in essence doing is you're saying God's love supersedes his holiness. And it will only lead you to a place of destruction. Now, there's another way to pervert God's grace. You could say his love supersedes his holiness, but here's another one. Some of you might not be guilty of the first, but you may be guilty of the second. God's holiness supersedes his love. You better do it right. I'm going to earn my way into heaven. You mess up, you're out. Legalism doesn't work. But grace or love without God's holiness doesn't work. Now, again, Jude mentioned something that you go, I'm not familiar with this. He, he quotes the book of Enoch. And here some of you are like, I didn't know there was a book of Enoch. I've never read that in my Bible. Because it's just like the assumption of Moses, a part of the pseudopigrapha. It's that part of that collection of books that, that isn't scripture, but it was well known and referenced often by the Jewish community at the time. And so he's referencing that, and, and he's saying in the book of Enoch, it talks about God's coming and his judgment and his wrath. And, and so because Jude quoted it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't give the rest of the book the weight of scripture. Doesn't mean go read the book of Enoch and do everything it says and believe everything it says. It means this portion, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is good and right. I mean, at different times, Paul quotes uh, people who aren't even Christians. It doesn't mean follow everything unchristian, non-Christians say. It means this is a truth. And so here's this truth from the book of Enoch. But here's his greater point, and this is it. That grace involves coming to Jesus as forgiver and leader. That's what grace is. Coming him as Savior and Lord. Some people just want to come and they want all the forgiveness so that grace may abound all the more. But that doesn't work. But then there's other people who say, Jesus, you're my Lord. I'm not asking for forgiveness. I'm going to earn my way in. I'm going to follow all the rules perfectly. And I'm going to make sure everybody in my downline does too. And when they step out of line, they're gone. If it's just me and Jesus, that's enough. Man, that path will only lead to destruction. But then there's those who say, just do what you want. Jesus will always forgive you. He's loving. He'll never send anyone to hell. He doesn't expect us to live a holy life, although the Bible says, be holy as God is holy. And that path will only lead to destruction. But God's heart isn't to destroy. God's heart is for us to be in right relationship with him, which means we need to hold in balance, in tension, God's love and God's holiness, because it is who he is. It is part of his character. And then he ends on a very hopeful note and a very encouraging note. He says, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own godly desires. I don't know if we're living in the end times. I know every day we're closer to the end, but it certainly seems like there are a lot of people who are living for their own selfish desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow your natural instincts, and who do not have the Spirit inside of them. But you, dear friends, this is the encouraging part. 
you to your friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Amen, amen, and amen. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted sin. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. So what is he ending with? He says, listen, I want to encourage you. Remain faithful. Stay in the faith. Build yourself up in the faith. Don't allow the corruption and the twisting and the perverting of God's grace to take your eyes off of what grace really is. Learn to walk in God's grace. Learn to receive God's grace. Learn to rest in God's grace. You don't have to earn it. Jesus has done everything. But then allow grace to have its perfect work in you, which is to change you and transform you. Not to allow you to slink down to the lowest base instincts, but to raise you up into the holiness, the image, the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would be the image of the firstborn son, the one and only God, Jesus Christ. And then as you're walking in grace, as grace is having its work in you, you're going to see people who are struggling in their faith. Reach out to them. You're going to see people who misunderstood what grace is. Don't turn your back on them. Pursue them. Snatch them from the fire. Point them back to what true grace is all about. Because that is what we're called to do. In other words, as you walk in God's grace, reach others with God's grace. Understand it. Walk in it. Receive it. Rest in it and then reach other people with God's grace. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love, your goodness, your holiness. Because without holiness, none of us will see you. God, I thank you that your character is that remarkable, really incomprehensible reality that Holiness and love collide and we see grace. Grace undeserved. Grace without measure. Grace, it is truly an incredible thing. God, if there's anyone here who has struggled with their understanding of grace, maybe they're on one side where they've made it into a license for immorality, sin, excuse, justification. God doesn't care. I don't see it that way. It's not really sin. God, would you bring us back to an understanding of what your holiness is? Or maybe there's some here who have seen grace only in the light of your holiness. We're to follow the rules. Do it right. That we can earn your grace. God, will we understand better what your love is all about so that we can walk truly in your grace. And as we walk in your grace, God, can we learn to be gracious to others, to reach them, to save them? Because it's to this 
which we're called. God, speak to us now, spirit to spirit, deep to deep, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our spirit and we would be different. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand to your feet. We're gonna sing a couple more songs. Just continue to celebrate who God is. During this time, we're gonna have some prayer teams up here. If you would like prayer this morning, something going on in your life, maybe you just need a healing physically, relationally, financially, Maybe you're just struggling making a decision, understanding what God has next for you. Maybe it's something we talked about this morning and you say, I've never really understood grace this way and I've made a mess of things. Whatever the case might be, just allow these folks to pray with you and pray for you. Because in this moment, God wants to jump into that situation and do something amazing. Let's worship God together.